Thank you for tuning in to Adversity University, and welcome to class. Hey, everyone, this is Sean, and we finished up another interview today with the help of our friend Jim Thompson. If you haven't heard his episode, definitely go back and check it out. He's a phenomenal guy and helped us make this connection, too. So it was a great interview and a lot of good lessons and a lot of good stories, too. Garrett, what would you think about Phil? Well, first of all, I'd like to give a big shout out to you, Sean. First pro point. That's a big milestone for you and many more to come. Also to Frank Murat or Francis, as some people call him, uh, for signing with the Islanders organization. Super proud of him and wish him nothing but the best his career. Um, But yeah, what a great interview. And um, we touched on some really cool things that we haven't before. Uh, One I won't dive into, but we touch on kind of what Evander Kane's going through right now and how a lot of uh, professional players don't really know how to manage their money very well. And I think that's, you know, seen throughout the professional ranks, not only in hockey, um, but yeah, what, what a knowledgeable guy. And it was cool to get his side of it. Um, not really a skill guy, but just finding his role and playing his role to the, uh, the best of his ability to give his team a chance to win every single night. Yeah. We talked about that Evander Kane issue and it kind of spiraled off on how, you know, the young players are able to have success today. And it's because of that support group that they have through the organization and everything's controlled for them, you know, nutrition and all the details that becoming an adult that you usually have to deal with. The teams do such a great job of moving young kids in with older guys. So, you know, they don't even have to worry about cooking or, you know, paying bills, any of that stuff. They can just focus on playing the game. And that's why they're so good right away. And another couple of good topics I thought we talked about was how the business world and sports world are more connected than you think they are. Um, He talks about how you got to, you know, be prepared for that transition, no matter how far away it is. Um, He didn't say it, but it's that growth mindset, right? And always trying to make yourself better, whether it's in sports, life, relationships, whatever it may be. Um, And then you actually had a phenomenal question too, that I'd love to keep asking guests in the future. Uh, How do you measure success? Because comparing yourself to others is such a bad thing mentally because you know, you're not the same as them and you need to do what you do to make yourself successful and setting realistic goals that will make you happy, you know, make you a better teammate, help the whole group have success is really important. Yeah. You brought up a great point too, during the interview too. It's uh, you know, there's a time and place to compare yourself to others. um, And the majority of the time, you shouldn't compare yourself to others. It should be about bettering yourself uh, every single day and be bettering than you were better than you were yesterday. Um, but just being realistic with yourself and the environment that you're surrounded in. Obviously, you don't want to be beat by teammates or people in that same position as you. Uh, but realizing that maybe you're a little bit of a late bloomer, uh, or maybe you're going through an injury or surgery. So just being realistic with yourself and being able to look in the mirror and give yourself a, a real gauge on uh, what's going on. Another really good episode. And like I said, anytime you guys want to give us feedback, we love hearing what you think. If you have any other guests you'd like us to interview or, you know, questions you'd like us to ask future guests, let us know. Let's kick it on over to Phil Crow. Monument Hockey Academy provides the highest level of developmental training available today. 
with intense focus on individual skills including skating, stick handling, shooting, game awareness, and competition, MHA offers players the opportunity to take advantage of up to 15 hours of on and off ice time per week to continue their personal development outside of team-specific training. Our coaches bring Tier 1, college, and pro experience and are trained in the latest and most cutting-edge programming in the world. Our academic support staff provides guidance and coaching with a variety of educational platforms, including online, in-person, and hybrid models, while ensuring students' NCAA eligibility from middle school through graduation. At MHA, our goal is to provide an opportunity for every player to reach his or her maximum potential, both on and off the ice. For more information or to schedule a visit, go to monumenthockey.com. Today's guest played professional hockey from 1990 to 2004, most notably in the National Hockey League for the LA Kings, Philadelphia Flyers, Ottawa Senators, and the Nashville Predators. He is now a co-owner of an oil and gas directional drilling company. Welcome to the podcast, Phil Crow. Thanks for having me, guys. Have you been able to golf much during the pandemic or are you stuck at home? Well, yeah, you know, living in Colorado, the weather's pretty darn good, but uh, uh, was getting out quite a bit. Last round, I think, was, uh, I guess, early December. Yeah, we're we're pretty lucky to have a great state here. Our uh, our editor and producer actually works on the golf course on the Air Force Base. So oh, sometimes nice. we get out to Eisenhower. It's beautiful out there. So you kind of grew up with Tiger Woods. Have you been able to watch him lately and uh, and see his son play? I've been watching some of the highlights of them playing together, and it's crazy to see, um, you know, how similar they are. And he's so young, too. I think that he's got a very bright future ahead of him if he stays in golf. I try not to watch that little turd because his swing is so amazing. It just, like, make me want to just crawl in a hole. Um, but, yeah, pr- pretty pretty incredible. You don't – you know, we didn't hear anything, which is amazing that they're able to keep that under wrap, you know, with with as, as much in the spotlight as Tiger is. And then all of a sudden it's like a coming out party and, the, you know, they're taking on touring pros together, you know. So um, it, it, what a what a story to follow up if his kid can walk in one of his footsteps would be pretty incredible. Yeah, I mean, for how young he is, too, and what he's been able to do and accomplish, and, you know, I think he's 12 now. It's crazy. And you talk about, you know, kids following in footsteps. You have John Daly's younger son, who's obviously set to play Division One golf here pretty soon. It's cool to see, you know, guys that are such generational players in golf have their kids kind of following their footsteps and obviously big shoes to fill, but it seems like they're doing a pretty good job so far. Well, do you guys watch the Tiger show that's on HBO right now that's floating around out there? I don't think so, no. Well, anyways, it, it, it's pretty it's pretty cool. It goes, I just watched it last week, but uh, goes into depth on, on really the regiment that Tiger from 10 months old was put under to, to become who he was as a golfer. I don't imagine that they put Tiger's boy in that same sort of constraints, but the natural talent is just there. You can you know, to have a swing like that. And, you know, it's, it's pretty incredible, but I, I think you're seeing it a lot, even uh, in other sports, you've seen a lot of uh, second generation hockey players that are, that are, you know, starting to get opportunities and playing, look at Domi's kid, uh, look at the Chuck boys, you know, so you're seeing a lot more of that as well. Yeah. And you mentioned hockey, Phil, you were born in Red Deer, Alberta. So what was your childhood like and how did you get involved in hockey? Well, I was a I was a little bit of a late start. Um, 
just simply my dad was in oil and gas. We lived overseas until I was like 10 years old. Um, I didn't even know what ice skates were. So came back and, and everybody was playing hockey and said, okay, I'm going to do this deal. And, you know, I was pretty much held onto the dasher board for the first year, just hold myself up around the edge and, you know, but quickly, quickly fell in love with, with the sport. Um, for, I was fortunate to get to where I got and never, you know, getting a late start like that, it's, it's very difficult to, to get the fundamentals where you truly need them to be. I never was a great skater, but made up for it in other avenues. Yeah, you definitely did. You had a really long and successful career. It only took you two seasons in the minor leagues before you cracked an NHL roster. How were you able to ascend through the minors so quickly? Well, I think a little, a little bit, little bit of luck, um, situational luck, got in the right place at the right time. So my story was this: I went to my first camp was so the Sutter boys from Alberta, right? Everybody knows them and pretty famous through my era. Um, well, they're they're pretty prevalent and you know around the Red Deer area. They got uh, farms in around Sylvan Lake and stuff. So they gave me my first opportunity uh, at a training camp. It was to go to a Blackhawks camp. So ended up in Blackhawks camp, had a pretty good camp, uh, sent down to the IHL in Indianapolis and didn't quite make the team. And uh, so I got sent to Columbus, the Columbus Chill, and a coach by the name of Terry Roskowski was there, great guy. Um, so I played in Columbus and then I got called up to, it's actually a funny story, I'll tell you, but I got called up to Adirondack. Well, the assistant GM of Detroit calls me and he goes, is it true that you knocked out Jerry the Hammer Fleming? You know, so not, nobody would know this guy, but he was, he's this old school, really tough guy, left-handed. And uh, we had a really tough team in Columbus, like one of the toughest teams I've ever played on. And I'm like, yeah, I was 21 years old. And I'm like, yeah, no big deal. You know, what are we talking about here? And so anyway, so I got called up to Adirondack. Well, the head coach of Adirondack was Barry Melrose. And me and him kind of clicked. And so they ended up winning uh, the Calder Trophy that year. He got the NHL job in LA. I got signed uh, to a contract with the Kings, played in Phoenix that year. And then they lost Marty McSorley. He signed in Pittsburgh as a free agent, didn't have much toughness, and I got my opportunity. Yeah, you mentioned that your toughness kind of got you your start in professional hockey. Uh, and especially back then, the game was crazy. Me and Sean talk about it all the time. It was like football on skates. Guys were tackling people from behind. It was just a very tough and brutal game. But what was your mindset like being a part of the game or, or playing the game within the game and having to worry about who you may fight each game? Well... Um, so I played in Philly with a guy by the name of Dan Cordick and, and his brother is famous and synonymous for, for this, you know, being one of the forefront, uh, pugilist goons, whatever you wanted to call us back in the day, uh, John. But anyways, I used to tell Dan all the time, it's the hardest way to make an easy living because here you are, you're preparing for the game, but you, you look at the roster sheet, you know, who's on the other side and there was a lot of times you just wanted to go out, get the fight over with early in the game. So then you could actually, you know, try to play because there's times you're squeezing that stick. You're looking over your shoulder. You're wondering when it's going to happen. And uh, uh, it, it really is, it was a difficult mental battle to play. And I think w when you look at 
how some of these guys have been affected long-term mentally. I think there's some scar tissue there and there's some unfortunate circumstances where it, it leads to alcohol abuse, drug abuse, whatever it might be, uh, depression. And, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of fallout uh, of guys that did our job that J Jimmy did the similar job as, as me. And um, there's a lot of fallout over the years. So it was a tough thing to, to digest. Yeah, how are you able to handle that mentally? Obviously, you know, when you're looking at the game sheet, you want to be looking at the guys like, oh, I'm playing Joe Sackick tonight. Oh, I'm playing with Wayne. But as that fighter, you're only worried about that tough guy, right, until that fight gets over with. So how are you able to mentally, you know, decompress when you were away from the rink and not have all that pressure on you all the time? I, I think, you know what, guys, I... I... And, and maybe I'm I'm looking through fogged up glasses, but I think I fortunately the way my brain worked, I was able to compartmentalize. Whatever the word is, compartmentalize. There you go. Jeez, <laughs> how's your grade six education, Phil? No, <laughs> I was able to I was able to put it in a in a space where I could block it out and stay focused. You know, I was. I was a robot when I played, so I had routines. I, you know, I relied on on effort to keep me there. I relied on the, you know, the small fundamental things. Being a really good team guy. Um, Jason York in Ottawa told me one time I could play another five years without a hockey stick. Just give me pom poms on the bench, right? So, <laughs> you know, when you're when you're playing five six minutes a night in at the National Hockey League level you've got to find ways to contribute and they're not always on the ice, right? So supporting your teammates, um, being positive in all situations. I was, you know, I think when I reflect back on my career, that's something that, uh, that I'm very proud of. Yeah. Well, it wasn't all bad. And your first NHL season, you played at LA Kings with the great one, Wayne Gretzky. And yeah. it was actually the same year that he broke the all time goal scoring record. What was it like playing with the greatest of all time as he was shattering records? Well, you know, what? I, I caught him. He got into a little bit of a slump and we were thinking that, uh, you know, if, if that's, if there's actually a, uh, if you could use the word slump ever with Wayne Gretzky, but you know, that, you know, breaking that record, I think was something that weighed on him, you know, and, you know, everybody was following him around. Uh, Gordy was following us around waiting for it to happen and, you know, by slump, I think it was, you know, a 10 game stretch where he was sitting tied and, you know, looking to break the record. And, and it was just one of those things that just took, took a, a few extra games, but I was fortunate, you know, I was a 23 year old kid and I, I was sitting, his stall was like four feet away from mine. And I just sat there, probably didn't say nine words all year. And I was just fortunate to see how he carried himself, how professional he was, um, how amazing he was. You know, um, th there's a reason that 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 Oilers team was so was so good throughout the 80s. You know, they were all if you look back through them, you know, Curry, Gretzky, Coffee, Messier, McSorley, all of these guys, they were just all solid character guys. And Wayne, you know, Wayne was the guy that, that put up the massive numbers, but he still had the same, the same character values that everybody had. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you a story. So, you know, I, I played in Phoenix the year before I made 22, five, everybody thinks everybody makes a ton of money playing professional hockey, but back in the early nineties, 
there was very few of us that did. And I was not one of those guys. And I get called up to LA the next year and we're in New York. It's my first road trip and we're out for a huge dinner and somebody yells credit card game. I don't know if you guys have heard of it, but I don't even have a credit card. I don't even have a debit card. Like I'm like, whatever meal money I had in my pocket, that was it, right? And Wayne was right beside me. And he, he must've saw this like look on my face, like what the heck, you know? And, and he just nudges me, goes, don't worry kid, I got two in for you. He throws two credit cards in, right? Of course, <laughs> he has come out right away because the rich always get richer, right? But uh, it was, for, for me being a young kid and being able to experience that, um, pretty incredible, you know? You're mentioning so many great names, Wayne Gretzky, Marty McSorley, uh, Paul Coffey, and, you know, you just mentioned some great memories, but what was your favorite memory of playing in the National Hockey League? Oh, well, you know, that first game is always something that, uh, that I think nobody will ever forget. You know, I can tell you my pregame sleep was, was non-existent. Um, you know, I, I, I got called up and basically – our, one of our assistant coaches was cap Raider and he's like, I'm going to make sure this kid's in shape if he ever gets an opportunity. Right. So that they basically bootstrapped me and bag skated me for 30 days, no games. Um, we were in Quebec city and uh, Barry tapped me after the, after the pregame skate and said, you're going tonight. And I was just like, all of a sudden, you know, could barely even breathe and, you know, so I remember I made this deal with my, one of my junior GMs, his name's Bob Clark and he just passed away. And he, he said, if you ever get a game in the NHL, call me, I'm going to try to get there. Right. So of course I go to the pay phone or the hotel phone. Cause there's no cell phones back then. And, and I get a hold of Bob and I said, Hey, Bob, I know it's short notice, but I just got told that I'm playing tonight. He goes, Well, I'm going to have to watch it on TV because he was in Parliament stuff and he was in Edmonton doing stuff. So he goes, But I will be watching. So it, it was pretty cool. And then I, a good friend of mine, Ed Ward, uh, he's an agent now, but we played together. We ended up playing together later on in Detroit for the Vipers, but he was playing for Quebec at the time. And I'm thinking, Okay, I got to find the biggest guy and I got to fight him. It's first game, right? So. So I'm looking across and, and it's Edward. So I, you know, I don't know he's a college guy and the whole deal he's, I just know he's like this six, four guy and I'm chasing him around the ice the whole time. And he's like, get out of here. I'm like, I'm not fighting you, you know, but that was my memories. I, I think it's one that sticks in there the most. Um, I'd like to say my first goal, I scored it on Broder, but I, I scored it from behind the net off the back of Ken Danico's foot. So I don't know if, if there's video proof of that. I hope it's grainy and it looks like I went end to end or something. But <laughs> Hey, they don't ask how, they ask how many, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't have that many, but. Hey, Marty Brodeur is quite a feather in the cap. Yeah, absolutely. Even though he didn't know who scored on him since I was behind him. but. <laughs> so we're in preseason game. And back in that, in the day that you used to play like, a dozen preseason games. Well, the fourth line guys, we would play almost every game because they're fights like crazy. So they play all of us hammerheads, right? So we're playing uh, Jersey in Philly and the assistant coach comes up to me after first intermission. He goes, if you get a chance, beat the shit out of that Scott Stevens. He's running around out there and he was a young guy. He's older than me, but you know, so Line brawl, who do I have? Scott Stevens. And I mop him up. Like, we're I'm dragging him around the rink. No linesman. Jersey over his head. I'm just meleeing him, right? It's not even fair. So third period comes, 
and he freaking hits me so hard that my right shoulder touches my left. I freaking missed four months. So uh, you guys ever hear the word pirate? So I got an engineer buddy that I work with. So there's this old word, uh, basically, uh, that they used, you know, when they used to go to battle, right? The freaking 500 people from each side would run into each other. Well, one guy would win one, one side would always win but he'd have three soldiers left or something, right? So it's a pirate victory because you knew the next guy that came through the territory was going to mop your mop the floor with you, right? So yeah. that, for me, that was my pirate victory. It was uh, freaking, I, 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 I mopped him up in the fight and he took me out for four months. My right shoulder, I had to learn to fight left-handed because my right shoulder was never the same. Were you taking so. boxing classes or how'd you learn to I did, fight? I did, I did a little bit, probably should have done, probably should have done more knowing now what I know with, uh, I, I've hired a couple of UFC guys that work for my company and they're assassins guys. Like what they, <laughs> what they can do with their feet and like, so I had Shane Carwin, he fought Brock Lesnar for the, uh, heavyweight title like one he's 280 pounds of solid muscle and a dangerous man but he can they, they are professionals at throwing their mitts whereas we're, we're just brawlers we're just we can take a punch and throw a punch we're just hammerheads right but those guys are assassins so. you played in a lot of cities in north america but near the end of your career you spent a season playing in scotland what was that experience like well, so I had a back injury in 2000 in Nashville, and that was pretty much the demise of, of my North America career. You know, it, it, it's funny, you go through it, and all of a sudden you start having some issues and, and uh, didn't realize that, that I had underlying issues. But I got the opportunity to go to Scotland, and uh, it was pretty fun. It, it, a lot different, uh, A lot different of an atmosphere over there. Pretty laid back wasn't suited totally for me like i you know I, I touched on it earlier i was a robot i did really well with coaches with uh very good structure uh hard organized flow practices um i didn't do well in in freelance environments and i went to scotland and you play one or two games a week you practice a couple times a week and guys are out golfing every day it was a different mentality but playing over there was incredible. My son actually was born over there. So, um, it was, it was a, it was a great paid vacation is what it was for me. Did you take advantage of that? Cause I hear all the time from people that play in Europe, especially a place like Scotland, uh, you know, the travel is great. So did you get to travel a lot? And if you did, what was your favorite place you visited? Well, a little bit. And that's, you know, unfortunately with my son, with my wife being pregnant with our second kid, uh, we were limited a little bit on the postseason season travel and stuff, but we got over to Ireland, um, into England a little bit. Um, so we did take a little bit of advantage of it. Um, would have loved to go over to, to the Swiss Alps and Italy and checked out a few of those different things. We just weren't able to with my wife being limited and, and her inability to travel. So your father unfortunately passed away when you were only 14 years old, and this can be a catastrophic to the rest of people's lives. Uh, how did you handle this situation as only a young teenager? Well, I, I think when we when we talked about this early on, um, you know, at the time you don't realize what you're going through, and it, it, hey, listen, I don't wish it on anybody, but it's one of those things that I think molds and shapes you if your if your mindset is correct to bottle that up. If you look back through, um, there's a lot of stories of guys that have went through one 
catastrophic, catastrophic event that's affected them, that's helped them get to higher levels and higher peaks. And I, and I think that holds true with me. Fortunately, my natural uh, mindset is to put more in and I'm going to get more out. So w- when my dad died, I just kind of, I just focused on, on putting more in. If I did a skate-a-thon at the rink, I was going to, I was going to do 10 times the laps that everybody else did. I didn't care, you know, and, and that mindset developed at an early age at 14. It matured me. It got me focused. I was able to accelerate my learning curve because I did start playing hockey lately um, that I, I had to make up a lot of ground on other people. Well, I did that through hard work and, and that carried over from my whole career. I don't think I would have played you know, 10 plus years of pro hockey if I didn't have that mindset. Yeah. I think that the value of hard work is obviously learned in different ways. And, um, it's cool to see how far you can push yourself. Right. So as a young kid, you don't really have those mental barriers and it's like, I'm going to do 10 times as many laps as everyone else at the rink. Right. It's just, you can push yourself so far and it's good to see that you were able to turn such negative thing into a positive event. Yeah. It's, you know, I, I think being born with, a ton of talent isn't always a blessing. Um, it can be if you learn to to focus and you learn to pour more in and you, you, you learn that results come off of effort and being a good person. So um, I, I think guys like me um, that maybe weren't blessed with as much talent, but we're, you know, blessed with the ability to focus and work hard and be dedicated and disciplined. And, you know, like when it came to, to training in the summertime and not partying, you know, I, I did all those things. I did them all, you know, to the best of my ability. And I think that's what gave me my opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. And another issue that you go through in sports is uh, self-doubt and something I personally go through a lot. And I think there's a lot of ups and downs, highs and lows in sports and just life in general too. Can you tell us about the 97, 98 season where you started in Ottawa and how you overcame your self-doubt? Well, yeah, you asked me before if there was one, one occurrence. I was, I I managed self-doubt pretty good throughout my career simply by living and dying by the phrase that I only worry about what I can control. And, and the, the things outside my control, I just can't do it. Now, there was one instance, and I, and I told you guys about it, but it was I started in Ottawa, uh, played the first nine games, had three goals. I, you know, obviously it wasn't a goal scorer. Um, had, a, you know, had a few fights, was doing well. Was, I felt at the top of my game. Um, I felt I was you know, in, the, in the top, I don't know what percentage of tough guys in the National Hockey League level. And I got sent down for political reasons. You know, my contract turned into a one-way deal for the for the remainder of the next two years. Um, and it was really it was really one of those situations that was outside my control. Uh, they they had you know Ottawa and the GM there. Um, he had to do the job that he had to do and manage his manage his money and his players and his number one you know players that were on one-way contracts. And I was one of those guys that, that fell into that. And I, I went down to the minors and I was completely crap. And we had a great coach there, his name's Steve Ludzik. And, you know, he's, he's battling with some, with some health issues right now. And 
he's one of those guys that I really always looked up to very organized, very disciplined, very intense coach. And he'd call me out on it. And, and it took probably a month before I was able to get my mindset back to where I was actually playing the game the way I needed to play, you know, at the national league level, I was a fourth line guy that played four to seven minutes a night. If I was lucky in the minors, I could play a, you know, a second, third line role and, and contribute a little bit. Um, but I was, I was playing a, a fifth line role when I went back down. So I let it, I let it consume me mentally and I didn't, I didn't manage it. And I was doubting whether or not I was ever going to be a full-time NHLer, um, doubting my abilities and, you know, all unjust, but the, the brain is a powerful tool. And if you let it take over, it, it, it can be something that affects you physically, your physical performance. And that's what happened to me. So um, I learned the lesson. I only did it once in my life. I still live by the same, same analogies that I only control what I can control. If I put more in than, than my competitors, most of the time I'm going to have better success. Yeah. And I think that mentally, you know, you can start feeling really isolated and alone. Uh, was there any of your teammates or, you know, maybe some friends back home or family that you kind of leaned on when you're going through rough patches? Yeah, I, I guess some guys do a better job of that. I'm probably not the best, uh, the best guy to spill my beans. And, you know, I kind of old school in that aspect. I can, I'll figure this out on my own. Maybe it's probably not the best approach, you know? And, and I think today, in today's world, they do a lot better job of, of utilizing the resources that are available to them, the, uh, the, the mental coaches and, you know, helping people through tough times through, through the better job of video and, and analysis and managing nutrition better and things. All these things we did on our own back in the day. Nowadays, they control your environment a lot better. And I, and I think that's why you see young kids coming in ready to play and, uh, and dominating. You know, if you look at kids like Marner that comes out of, out of junior hockey and, and lights it up right away, Austin Matthews, um, you know, I'm picking on Toronto players. They're good players. But look at McKinnon. Look at Kale McCarr here in Colorado, you know. Uh, these young kids, they're ready to play early, and I think that's because of the support system that's out there. Yeah, I want to take a step back. I think that self-doubt kind of comes from a little bit of a lack of confidence, and you just mentioned that as you went from the minors to the NHL, your role changed. So as your role changed, how did you measure success? You talk about being an enforcer in the NHL, playing five to seven minutes a game, to going down, contributing maybe within points. So when you're an enforcer versus a guy that's contributing or vice versa, how do you measure your success and start to build that confidence within yourself? Well, you know, I think if you have a good coach that, that, that outlines your roles and responsibilities and you really understand that um, because it's different on every team, every, every situation is a little bit different. You, you fit into uh, a, a little bit of a different niche, a little bit of a different role. So um, you, you know, when I was in, uh, when I was in Detroit and I got sent down from Ottawa and Ludgy goes, okay, I want you to play right wing with Samsonov. He was a 17 year old kid before, before he got drafted to the Bruins. I'm like, okay, sweet. I'll try to keep up to him if I can, you know? So, um, you know, I got opportunities like that where you're playing with, with far superior skilled players, but you, 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 you have the ability if you stay within your role to contribute with those players. And so I had success with, with some guys like that. 
Um, in, I think it was 94, 95 or 95, 90, I think it was 95, 96. I was in, uh, I was in uh, Hershey and my centerman was Jim Montgomery. And I had like, I had 11 goals in 44 games. Well, I think he was banking them off my ass and stuff. But, um, you know, I remember we started that season. I'd gotten sent down. I was a little pissed off. I had a little bit of a, of a, of a burr in my side because I thought I should have been in the national hockey league. And, um, so I, you know, they, they're playing me with money. I'm like, this is an opportunity to, to, to show that I can actually play and contribute. So told money, I said, if anybody goes within five feet here for the first 10 games, I'm just going to come over the top and destroy them. I don't care who it is. Right. Cause I knew if he had time and space, we were going to have success. Right. He was an extremely gifted player. And so, uh, I did that and I ended up, you know, like I, I was lighting it up, got called back up to Philly. Um, so you, you just find your role within that, within that different situation and you make the best of it through hard work and through effort. And, and for me, it was through following the team systems. I was not a freelance guy. I wasn't going to go end to end with the puck. You know, if I had the puck on my stick for more than three seconds, I was getting yelled at because it was going to be a turnover. Right. So, so I minimized my, I minimized my mistakes. Uh, and maximized my opportunities through through playing the system. Some guys can freelance it, I couldn't. Yeah, it's funny to see in sports, guys have like, I call it like a different length of a leash, right? So there's the guys who are allowed to go out and make mistakes because, you know, sometimes it's going to work out and you're going to get that goal. And there's the guy, he tries to make one move and it goes wrong and it's, you know, you're done for the night. So um, it's definitely important to not compare yourself to other players on your team because like you said, there's different roles. And if you can find a niche and a way to be successful within that team, you know, you, you just have to measure success the way that it pertains to you. Like you can't measure your game based on Wayne Gretzky's game, right? Even though you're both on the LA Kings at the same time. Yeah. I had a much harder shot than Wayne. <laughs> it's actually funny. So every year back in the, in the nineties, so they would do these big all-star game uh, competition things. So I don't know if you guys remember them, but it's run a little bit different than it is now. So every team would host their own little mini all-star game competition. Right. So every year I'm like, Oh my gosh, like what, what are they going to put me in here? Like my skill set is not cut out for all-star game freaking in front of any, it used to be 20,000 people come to the stadium to watch the flyers or the Kings or whatever. So they put me in the uh, hardest. So I remember in 93, 94, Okay, Phil, you're in the hardest shot competition. So I get to the far blue line, skate as hard as I can, wind up in the slot, shoot it like 76 miles an hour, right? <laughs> and uh, Thomas Sandstrom takes one shot, snapshot 94. I'm like, okay, I'm out of here. You know, this is embarrassing, right? So then a, a couple of years later, I'm in Philly, same thing. And they put me in like the, the puck control, agility, skate. And I got to go against this, this Swede, Patrick Eulin. And he can fly, got great hands. I'm like, this is this is going to be embarrassing. And I, I don't know if you guys, you know, Philly fans are ruthless and relentless. And they're going to be like going nuts in, in, in the stadium. So I go to Eric. I go, Eric, I got, I'm going to get embarrassed, but I, I'm going to cheat here. So, <laughs> so I, I drill a hole in the puck and a stick and I tie a string from the puck to my stick. And so we start and I got, I got my, I got the puck in my hand. I drop it and I go. And so I'm skating. I'm right with Yuli at the end. And I, 
like a, you got to turn tight turn and come the other way and everybody's like what the heck and a couple times the puck like you know of course i lost it because my mitts were terrible and it comes flying back and the whole crowd's like oh the, the boys are <laughs> laughing and then i start laughing and, and he really beat me i cheated and he still beat me he, i had a string and he did until he <laughs> pretty embarrassing but that's awesome that's funny. And you mentioned Philly being ruthless. There's other, you know, NHL cities that are ruthless. So what was the most ruthless city that you played in? Oh, as, as a player or as an opposition? I would say both. Yeah, well, going into Boston was always always a, a, a pretty fun experience. You know, the, that, I, I got to play in old Boston Garden and the rink was a little smaller. So it kind of fit my game because I didn't have to skate very far to get a hit. But um, the fans were nuts in Boston. Um, some of the stuff that I saw in the minors was crazy guys. Like you'll never, like when you, when you watch slap shot, that stuff happened, you know, I've, I saw a guy get baseball swung from the bench across the lid. I've seen guys go over the glass into the stands, uh, fighting with fans, you know, like that stuff doesn't happen anymore, you know? So, um, some pretty crazy, pretty crazy stuff. And after your playing career ended, uh, you coached professionally for six years. What was the transition like and what was your coaching style? Well, so I, I was assistant coach in, in a team. We started in the Central League and then it moved to the East Coast League. It's still around. It's now an American League team. It's here in Colorado, the Colorado Eagles. Um, great franchise. I was fortunate to. So my junior coach, Chris Stewart, was the GM and head coach there. And uh, he gave me a lot of leash. He let me, he let me uh, design and run practices and uh, matchups and stuff of that, of that nature. Um, he, was, he was great to learn from. Um, it was, uh, I was passionate about it. I, I think if you look at some of the uh, most successful coaches, their, their demeanors are very calm, cool, and relaxed. That's not my natural uh, tendencies. I tend to be a little bit more rah-rah, a little bit, you know, things that made me successful as a player. Um, I probably don't translate the best to be uh, your top-tier coaches. I think I did a really good job um, with practices, with drills and, you know, understanding of the game and positional teaching and stuff of that nature my one issue that I had and, and the reason that I, I went in a different direction was, you know, if I'm going to chase this, am I really going to make it to the, to the top level of this? I, I don't think so. I, I had to put limitations on myself solely because I, I think I was just too much emotionally invested. And, and I watched some of the best coaches out there. It's, it's like they're poker players back there, you know, they don't let things affect them. And, and I, me on the bench, I'd get excited and I'd get pissed. And I get my, I were, you know, I was successful playing because I wore my emotions on my sleeve. Coaching was one of those things. If I was to be a head coach, I think I was too emotional. I think that the fans like that too. Like, I don't know if you remember a few years back, Patrick Waugh became the head coach of the Colorado Avalanche. And I think his first game, he, he knocked the glass over between because he was screaming at the other coach so loudly and he was just so passionate. So I don't know. I think there's pros and cons to both, obviously, but. Um, we were skating with some people that we trained with in the summer and guys who I used to play with are now coaching. And they told me that um, the game's actually easier now for them now that they've coached because they see it at a different perspective and they can just make those reads and things. Did, did you think that coaching gave you a different perspective on the game? 
Well, I, I think if you look, uh, some of the most successful guys are the guys that spend most time on the bench, right? So tough guys. Look at Berube now in St. Louis, had a great run there. Uh, look at how many goaltenders are actually, and backup goaltenders per se. You know, you, you mentioned Patrick, he was a starter, but um, backup goaltenders. You, because I think you have the ability over this this lifetime or this career to watch thousands of games in thousands of different situations and digest them when you're playing them and when you're the first top six forwards and the top four d and you're in the middle of that sometimes it, it happens so fast to you you don't realize why it, it unfolded the way it did um so you know for me i always had a really good understanding of defensive zone concepts even though i was a right winger I understood where the D needed to be. I understood where the players needed to be to support properly. And so I think that's why I was very successful um, in coaching and, and teaching that those aspects. Um, so, some guys, you know, Gretzky tried it. He's, we mentioned him earlier and he's one of the, he's the best player to ever play the game. And, and he didn't have this, the same success didn't translate for him as a, as a coach. Now, was it that he had, didn't have the right players. You know, my buddy always told me, his dad told him, if you want to be a good coach, get good players. Right. So, um, but it doesn't always translate that the best players become the best coaches. Yeah. I think the joke with Wayne was he would try and coach guys and tell them to do stuff. They're like, Wayne, we can't do that. Only you could do that. Yeah. <laughs> and, you can, and you can see that like Wayne, Peter Miller, the equipment manager in LA used to bring Wayne brand new gloves after warm up to start the game. Like I'm talking brand new gloves and Wayne wore gloves almost to his elbows, like the longest cuff gloves you've ever seen a human wear in your life. And I'm over here breaking mine in and everything. And I can't stick handle it for four feet. Right. And he'll go out and get three goals with those gloves. It was amazing what he could do. Yeah. That's crazy. And so you've actually moved on from sports now and today you provide directional drilling services to oil companies. How did you get involved in this and how has life been now that you're out, out of the sports? Well, you know, I think that's one of the messages that I t try to deliver to friends and, and other other aspiring athletes or whatever is, is, hey, listen, maximize your opportunities in the sports world. But that, that's part of your education moving forward. So I utilize a lot of things that I learned, the ability to speak in public, um, the, the ability to, to outwork my, my competitors and my opponents. Um, you know, I translate, translate that into the business world, the business world and the sports world are a lot more connected than we ever think they are. Um, I think one of my fears coming out of the, you know, all I had done for 20 years was hockey and coming out of that, I'm like, Oh crap, I'm, I'm in my mid thirties. I'm starting over. What am I going to do here? You know? So I got an opportunity. My brother, uh, had a little company and they needed a salesman in Denver and I got an opportunity to do it and had some early success, gave me some, probably some false confidence that, Hey, this is easy. Um, but in, anyways, you know, I trans transitioned into it and, uh, I love it. I love it. You know, I've got a team now I've got a sales team that works for me. Um, they're great kids. Um, I hire former professional athletes. I got a kid that, that played, uh, hockey, Tom Maxwell played junior in medicine hat played pro for five, six years. Um, I, I think a lot of the things that I learned over my 15 year career and in my five years of coaching translated to the business world. And so I'm, I'm having a blast. It's a great, great thing. We started our own company in 2009 and, and we're still, you know, nobody's tore our shingle down. So we still, we're still going here. 
I feel like that's a big fear with a lot of hockey players. At least that's how I envision it, that, you know, life after hockey, like, what am I going to do? But I think that's great that you talk about relying on the skill sets that you learned through hockey that are so applicable to everyday life. And I think that that's really overlooked. You mentioned a lot. Uh, Not only that, you you talk about multiple people, Wayne Gretzky, a lot of guys that you play with, they're all good character guys. When you get uh, hired on a job, they're looking for people with high character, high work ethic, really good people that just want to be there and enjoy and do what they do and work very hard at it. And I think that hockey teaches every single player that. No, ab- absolutely. And, you know, the one thing that if I if I was to share a message, the one thing that I think a person needs to do is work more on your transition. Right. Like the reality is the reality is this. The average NHL career uh, when I played was like five years. I think it's less than that now um, at 30 year old. Right. And, you know, there's guys signing hundred million dollar contracts. But guess what? There's guys that make 600 grand in their whole career, you know, and that's not enough to live the rest of your life. So when you have the opportunity and you have your downtime and, you know, you, you guys are going to, to school and getting the degree, but you get a chance to play pro after keep working on yourself professionally so that you are in a good, a good spot. Once you once you transition out of the sports world and into the business world. And I think another thing that you get from sports is the connections and the networking. I know uh, when my team opted out of the season, I'd try and find a new place to play. And what did I fall back on? My old teammates, where are they playing? Can they get me their coaches' numbers? Can they get me, you know, a European agent? And I think that, you know, you got your opportunity through your brother, but it could have just as easily come from a former teammate too, right? Well, absolutely. You know, I think one of the big... uh one of the big selling features for me for kids to play college hockey is uh, is that networking deal. You know, you, you graduate with a thousand alumni at uh, you, whatever university you graduate. Those guys are willing to help you guys forever, especially being collegiate athletes. And so maximize those, maintain those those connections, do internships. Um, it, it, it was amazing to me how many kids would come out of junior hockey with a signing bonus in their back pocket and they didn't know how to buy insurance. They didn't know how to turn on utilities or fill out a credit application, you know? So um, there's, there's things that, that, that we need to take care of as athletes, you know, no matter how far you go, because even let's say you're, you're a top six guy in the NHL and you made $40 million over your career, but you're done at 32 years old. What are you going to do for the rest the next 50 years you're just going to sit there and and live off your dividends i guess you could but you're going to get pretty bored so there's a lot of other exciting things that a person can do yeah that was a big selling point for me and my family to play college hockey was there's life after hockey and like you said whether you play for 10 you know if anyone ever could play for 30 years maybe yarmy auger that's probably it uh but there is life after hockey and like you said you're going to get pretty bored unless you're playing golf every day um and you better be pretty good at it if not uh, but and then you talk about college too. Sean and I talked about this on a previous episode. Episode. Sean learned how to pay bills and you know manage the social life and everything else and, and taxes and all that other stuff um, and other great life skills that we all just talked about that are so applicable after the game or even when you are a pro athlete. And I think some of these guys when they go play major junior, they live with built families. They don't really get that, and then they go play professional hockey and they're not ready to manage everything that you do. So I think that that's one of a, a, a big selling and turning points for people to play college hockey. Well, guys, are you, have you followed the Evander Kane deal at all? Like it's crazy, it's crazy. Well, well th- this isn't an isolated incident, guys. This isn't a, this isn't a, 
uh, wow, it happened once in the history of, of professional sports. No, this happens a lot more than you than you ever think of. It's getting some media highlights because he owes freaking Vegas so much money, right? If it, it's it's crazy, the Jack Johnson deal where his parents mismanaged his money, all of these things, right? These are these are kids that just aren't equipped with the tools to manage their success. They're, some of these guys are running Fortune 500 companies. Let's face it, the money that they're making is astronomical. But they they don't they don't understand profits and balances, investments and dividends and tax allocations and you know what you need to do with it and you know how do you protect yourself and um, it, it's sad when you see situations like that because these are he, he, he could this could be his one contract what's it forty million dollar contract and creditors are going to be going to be sponging it all up you know it, it's a terrible deal. Yeah, it's something that I think is important too. Just like talking to your parents for younger kids. Like, it, I know it's not a fun conversation, but just asking them, like, hey, like, how do I apply for a credit card? Like, how do I make sure, you know, I pay my bills on time, all that stuff that, you know, it's just life experience that they have. And if you know how to do it at a young age, it's just, it's going to help you and you won't be set back like a few guys have been now. Well, I will tell you this. We talk about former uh, former players and then their kids. So uh, one of my best friends on earth is his name's Brent Thompson. So you guys talk to Jimmy Thompson. So uh, Brent Thompson is the head coach of Bridgeport in the American Hockey League. Uh, has been there for five or six years, was an assistant in the with the, with the Islanders for a few years. Um, he's had a really good coaching career. He's done a great job. He's got two kids. Tage plays in Buffalo. Um, he's a big six, seven, uh, centerman winger and his other kids in Providence, uh, Tice Thompson, they're both really good hockey players. Tice was drafted fourth round in New Jersey two years ago. Uh, Tage was drafted first, first round to St. Louis and then traded in the Ryan O'Reilly trade over to Buffalo. Well, Brent made about every mistake financially that you could make as a, as a young athlete. Um, and he learned from these, you know, financially made mistakes, physically made mistakes. Like he was, he was LA's uh, top pick second round. They didn't have a first round pick. Um, and, and he just didn't, he didn't pay the price early on in his career, but nobody had taught him. Nobody taught him how to work out. Nobody taught him how to save money. He spent every penny. He, you know, he'll be the first to tell you he learned now his kids, are the opposite because of the lessons that he learned throughout his career. Tage is making good money, making 1.5 or whatever it is, and he's putting it away, living frugally, uh, planning for the future, making sure he's not beyond his means. And I think talking to the parents, you're, you're fortunate if you have a parent that went through it and lived it and understands it and knows how fragile your opportunity is. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of really solid uh, blue collar parents out there that uh, can help you out along the way. I think it's important to just have that circle around you too that helps you uh, push to get better. And like you said, hopefully you don't have to go through a scenario, especially as deep as Evander Kane is to learn the lesson of how fast the money goes and stuff like that. Um, hopefully you can realize it a little bit sooner, but it's good to learn th through other people's experiences. And that's obviously kind of why we started this to, to learn through other people's adversities and hopefully not have to go through the same uh, roads that those people did to, to learn the examples. Well, so I'll, I'll keep going on the Brent Thompson story. So he, he's, his wife's from Phoenix, um, has, has a great rookie season, makes the all-star team in the IHL plays up in LA the next two years, 
um, but put minimal effort out. Signs a, 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 a unrestricted free agent deal with Winnipeg, three years, one way money, goes to camp and has the, like the lowest VO2 in camp. And they sent him to the minors because of it, not because of his, how the type of player he was, just that because he, he came to camp out of shape. So, you know, me and him are talking. He's like, well, I just kind of worked out a little bit, and but I golfed all summer. I'm like, well, that doesn't cut the mustard. So I was fortunate enough. I was playing in Ottawa and Chris Phillips bought a cabin on the same lake as that I was living at. And me and Philly had similar mentalities, a lot different skill set, but similar mentalities. Uh, he was one of the hardest working guys. He was probably one of the only guys that could ride the bike with me. Um, and that was just a mental toughness deal. So I made Brent sell his house in Phoenix, bought a place in Sylvan Lake and started training with us, went to camp and had, was in the top 10% of conditioning tests, the next camp, uh, his third year on his one way deal with Winnipeg. I think he had the highest scores in camp for his conditioning levels. Here's a, here's an athlete that has asthma, but just by changing the way that he trained in the off season. And, and the way that he ate and, and how disciplined he was, we changed his life and he's still in the game today, you know? So he's coming on 25 years in professional hockey because of that mindset change. And I think earlier we talked about how you shouldn't compare yourself to others in your goal setting, but I think you absolutely should compare yourself to others in training. So, absolutely. you know, a skilled player comes and works out with a guy like you who has to work his hardest every single day just to make the team it's going to make him so much better because he's comparing to himself to your standard of training and getting better, but not to that end result. Well, I, I always said, and I've lived by this concept. If you're not training, somebody else is, and they're getting better than you. They're getting stronger. They're getting faster and they're going to take your job. It's a competition out there, guys. If you want to, if you want to survive in the sports world, you better figure out a way to outwork everybody. You talked about changing off-season habits, too, and how he trained and worked out. But the way that I saw that whole story is he changed who he was hanging out with. You know, he surrounded himself with people that wanted to be better, that wanted to be the best, wanted to be successful and work, work their absolute bags off. And I think if you surround yourself with people like that and you're consumed by them daily, their habits bleed into what you do and they become your habits, too. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and we talked about it, how, how it's changed. I believe that there's way less... Uh, there's way less situations nowadays where you see guys showing up to camp out of shape. There's, there's so many quality camps and, and groups of guys playing. You guys train in Colorado. I know there's a solid group of, of guys training in Colorado at high altitude. And uh, the resources are plentiful out there. We used to get a book from the NHL team and follow the book. That's how we train. We didn't have personal trainers, you know? So there's a guy in uh, Alberta now. They just, they actually just, they're starting a, a tier two junior A team in black Bolts, but his name's Al Parada. And he, uh, he started a, a training program strictly for hockey players. And I remember, so we would work out his gym. It was called hard bodies. Um, an old time muscle gym, you know, guys, big, huge guys or whatever. We trained a lot different, but we had our books and we do our books. So we, at the end of the one summer, we gave Al like five years worth of books and said, Hey, take what you like out of this. He, Cause he, he's like, I want to develop a program. And he did it. Now he's not the only one on the planet, but he's been very successful with that specialized training for athletes, but looking at flexibility, looking at explosiveness, looking at strength, 
looking at uh, how to develop hockey IQ. It, it, there is so many resources now. I, I think you you see far less guys not putting the effort in. Well, Phil, I can't thank you enough for coming on. It was unbelievable hearing your story, talking to you and picking up some advice. Thank you so much for taking the time. Well, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, hopefully I didn't embarrass you too bad. <laughs> no, it's great, Phil. It was amazing. Thank you for listening to this episode of Adversity University. You can follow more news about Adversity University on our social media pages. Our Instagram handle is adversity underscore university. Our Twitter handle is adversity underscore UNIV. And our Facebook page is Adversity University. If you know of any high-level athlete or professional that has an interesting story of overcoming adversity and you think they should share it, you can email us at adversityuniversitytalkshow at gmail.com. You can also use that email if you are interested in becoming a sponsor for Adversity University. We look forward to bringing our listeners more content from interesting guests weekly, so stay tuned on social media to see who could be next and what our past guests are up to now.